Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. How does a pilot see the cities of the world? Unlike residents who live there full-time, or tourists who travel once and perhaps never again, pilots are brief but regular visitors to the great hubs of the globe. In Imagine a City, a pilot's journey across the urban world, Mark Van Honecker helps to give us an answer. In his book, Mark charts his flights all over the globe to cities like Hong Kong, Jeddah, Rio, Cape Town, Sapporo, Delhi, and many more. But the book also regularly returns to his hometown, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, near the state border with New York. Mark Van Hocker is a commercial airline pilot and writer, the author of the international bestseller Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot and How to Land a Plane. He is also a regular contributor to the New York Times and a columnist for the Financial Times. Born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he trained as a historian and worked in business before starting his flight training in Britain in 2001. He now flies the Boeing 77 Dreamliner from London to cities all over the world. Today, Mark and I talk about his travels from the relatively small town of Pittsfield to the snowy streets of Sapporo. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast today. You know, I want to start with that kind of observation I kind of hint at the beginning, which is to ask, you know, how different is it to travel to a city as a pilot instead of, you know, as a tourist, as a visitor? Does the experience of traveling to a city for a short period, perhaps many, many times, give you a different perspective of what these places are like? Uh, well, well, thank you, Nicholas. It's a it's a real pleasure to be joining you. Um, you know that that experience of going to cities as a pilot is is re- is really um, something that even when I was a kid dreaming of becoming a pilot um, and of flying off to the cities I, I found on my on my you know illuminated globe in my childhood bedroom, you know, is something I really couldn't imagine. Um, I had no idea that you would. That I would eventually have a sense of cities um, that was built up, as you say, in these kind of short um, but but repetitive visits that that go on um, over years and years, and 
you know, really very different from the way that I experienced cities um, as a as an ordinary traveler, and then later as a business traveler. I mean, if you if you go to a city as a tourist, um, you know, if you if you travel to um, to Sydney or Hong Kong or, or London, um, you may, depending on on where you live. Um, think that that's the only time in your life you'll, you'll ever go there and you'll have a, a list of things that you want to do. Um, you'll have recommendations from friends or from the internet and, and, you know, you'll want to make the most of your time there. You'll, you'll want to get up, um, you know, um, maybe not even have a sleep after your flight and, and just head out and start doing things. Uh, and, it, or if you're a business traveler, uh, I worked, uh, in a, in a management consultancy for many years before I, uh, became a pilot. Uh, you know, you, you have meetings to go to, and then in the evenings, perhaps you have um, socializing, which is, um, you know, another kind of meeting. Um, and you may just have a few minutes or a few hours here or there um, in order to see the city. Um, whereas uh, when we come to a city as a pilot, uh, our work is finished when we arrive there. And, and we have this, um, you know, not only do we have the free time um, to, to, um, to explore a city, especially when you're a long-haul pilot and you have longer stays of a day or two or even three days, but you also have the sense that you're going to come back there. Um, you might even know, you, you might land in a city and know already that you're going to be back there um, a few weeks later. Uh, the first time I ever went to Beijing, uh, some of my colleagues were making a journey up to, to see the Great Wall, um, to see one of the sections nearest to Beijing. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I was keen to join them. I'd never been uh, to China before. I'd never um, seen the Great Wall. Um, but I knew I was coming back to Beijing just a few weeks later. So I thought, oh, well, on this first day, I'm just going to walk around the city and um, and explore it on the, you know, on the uh, on the metro and, and, and just kind of wander and get lost, knowing that I can do those big those sort of big name sites another time um it, it's a really it, it's a really extraordinary way to to get to know a city and you end up doing little errands in cities that you uh that you might have done at home but you but become a slight adventure um uh when you do them in another place i remember once i uh, my watch strap was broken and i was going to sao paulo the week later a week later and i thought oh well i'll just i'll just get it replaced in sao paulo which you know turned out to be a a, a memorable morning in, in a city that uh, in in a way that few others might might have a sense of it All right it seems like it's, it's that kind of i guess strange regularity um the, 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 at least the stories like that like the one where you said where you go to where you go to sao paulo to replace a wrist strap yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, um, Los Angeles is a city that um, you know. I grew up uh, on the east coast of the U.S. Uh, or, or near the east coast, um, as you said. And Los Angeles was this kind of magical name growing up. You know, I think um, California has a certain you know appeal, um, especially perhaps back then um, to people on the east coast. And I kind of I couldn't really imagine I would ever go to Los Angeles. Um, uh, and then. I started flying there uh, when I became a pilot on the 747. And um, when I first started flying on the 747, there were three 747s a day going from Heathrow to, to Los Angeles. So it was, you know, it was a really common route for us to fly. Um, and you know, you start developing these routines there. You have cafes you like. You have um, you know hikes you like to do, and uh, and and. You know, after a while, maybe four or five years into my career on the 747, it's the, uh, we stopped flying to Los Angeles on that airplane. So I didn't go, I didn't go again for a few years. And, and when I came back after that period, um, when, when when it restarted flights uh, to Los Angeles on the 747, I I looked in my logbook to see how many times I'd been there before, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I've been there 20 or 25 times, and it was close to 50, and now it's close to 70. I mean, it, it's a it's a, it's a remarkable sensation to have of a city which isn't your own. Um, you know, often I'll meet people from 
from you know any of the cities I love best: um, Los Angeles, Vancouver, uh, Mexico City, and and uh, if I meet them, you know, if they're a friend of a friend, I'll, I have this sense that I that we have their city in common. That I'm you know almost that that I'm from there in some sense, but of course that's not true. I, you know, I have that feeling about so many cities. It can't be true of any of them. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you even find yourself, um, I don't know if you've had that experience in your hometown, um, where visitors or tourists are walking more slowly or a little unsure of where, where you're, where they're going. And you kind of pass them at, at speed because you know where you're going and, you know, you just want to, get past um, down the street to, to where whatever it is your your day holds and you know I end up walking like that in cities past tourists even though those, those cities aren't my own either uh, it's a very strange it's a very strange sense of um, of a place and you know and I, I certainly wouldn't argue that it's a deeper sense um, but it's definitely a different or unique one um, clearly clearly it's um, it's almost a false sense of intimacy of, you know in, in a place to, to think you know it when of course. Uh, people who are from there obviously have a much deeper sense of it, um, but it's it's unique and it's something I, I really tried to capture in, in, in Imagine a City. I really wanted to relate uh, to people who who aren't air crews um, what it is like to to get this sense of of the whole world, um, uh, this this incredibly urban planet. Uh, you know, especially now that you know more than half of us um, live in cities, and I think by 2050, two thirds of us will. Um, and this the sense of an urban planet, which which um, is is really um, increasingly just a, another way of saying human civilization, um, is something that I, I I wanted to to try to capture both from above, of course, because pilots see it from above, um, but also from the streets after we land. So, you mentioned growing up on the East Coast, um, you know, and if there's one place that pops up, I think probably the most in your book and it's completely understandable why it's it's your hometown of pittsfield um in western mass i should note that i myself have ties to western mass my family um lived in amherst so i went to western oh, mass wow. a lot okay. growing up um oh, i believe it's uh, what that's like an hour and a half's drive from pittsfield i believe uh, uh, um, amherst is about an hour and a quarter yeah i actually went to amherst yeah. college so I, I know the area um i know the area very well on the and the road <laughs> oh really we should okay then we should we should talk about that offline (laughs) you know but you know but but let's let's talk about kind of pittsfield you know why why did you kind of bring up um that hometown which which i'm you know is probably a lot smaller than a lot of the than most of the cities talk about in your book why does why did you kind of give pittsfield kind of almost kind of prime place throughout the many chapters in your book so uh, imagine a city started out as a travelogue, um, which is really what's at the heart of it. Um, it it's this story of a pilot's experience of, of the world of cities um, in a way that perhaps nobody else in history has ever had, um, you know, that experience that pilots now have. But it also became um, almost um, as if of its own will, it became a, a memoir as well. Um, and I found that I couldn't really write about cities uh, without talking about my first city, because I found that, you know, so often when I was in these far off places, I was thinking back to my hometown. Um, and, you know, in Pittsfield is, um, it's a small city, about 45,000 people now, um, but it's a very, um, you know, it's a unique place in some ways. Um, I obviously think it's, it's, uh, it's special and unique. And, and yet in other ways, it's, uh, it has been subjected to a lot of the forces that a lot of um, cities in, 
in the U.S. and in Western Europe have have struggled with as well in terms in terms of globalization and um, the decline of its factories. Um, and and so in that sense, it is um, you know it is a, a kind of model for other people's hometowns. But but more more importantly, I, I think you know growing up there, I wanted to I really wanted to leave. I, I wanted to to become a pilot and to fly off to the places that. Uh, um, that I saw in my, you know, my, my childhood bedroom had an illuminated globe and I had a lot of model airplanes and, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> no one would be, no one who knew, no one who knew me then is surprised I became a pilot and, and, and a long haul pilot. Um, but yet, the, you know, the more I've seen these cities um, that are so far from Pittsfield and as I've gotten older, frankly, as well, I think um, it's, it's more and more, um, you know, that inclination to look back at your own story and your own places Um is um is something that grows stronger and stronger and and really informs this the book um you know i go back to pittsfields all the time um as often as i can my parents aren't there anymore but uh various friends of my parents are there and and some of my childhood friends are still there and i think terry pratchett has a, a line about uh you know why do we go away why do we travel and the answer is so we can come back again uh, we come back and we're, you know, we're not the same as we were when we left. And and Pittsfield has had that role in my life. And, you know, the way in which, um, the way in which a, a hometown is always with you, almost like a first language, especially, um, it's especially compelling to me in the sense that Pittsfield is a small city, but, you know, many of the ones I go to um, for work are, are, are large. I mean, they're some of the largest cities in the world. If you go to Delhi or Lagos um, or Tokyo or, or Beijing uh, or Sao Paulo or Mexico City. or um, And so that, that sense that, that, a, that a first city is like, has a, you know, is always with you, even in the largest ones, and that it's something that you come back to again and again, um, both uh, imaginatively and, and, and in physically, if you can, um, throughout your life, uh, is really the the sort of the structure of the book, and it's it's a quality that I that I really wanted to capture in it. Um, I think um, you know that there's all those lines. I think Thomas Wolfe, you know, had his book. You can't you can never go home again. You can't go home again. Uh, maybe you can't, but um, but I've certainly tried, and and I've and I've done so from from journeys that are as far reaching as anyone can make today. I'd like to shift from talking about your hometown to talking about my hometown, if you will allow me to. Um, so I, I, I'm from Hong Kong, and Hong Kong does feature um, a little bit in your book. You do have one kind of part of one chapter kind of talking about about Hong Kong. Um, uh, I think you, you, if I get the dates right, you probably weren't a pilot at the time, but I always remember flying into Hong Kong through the old airport of Kai Tak, um, right in the center of town. Um, which uh, was closed in 98, I believe. And while they probably had to close it, it was a really difficult airport to fly into. I'm sure if you were a pilot, it does feel like, you know, something was lost and kind of missing, losing that kind of flight over the city and having the planes be right over, um, right over the the center of Kowloon. Um, But I hoped if I might can ask you um, as, as, as a pilot that flew into Hong Kong and has someone that does feature Hong Kong, at least for a little bit in your book, kind of what was your experience of Hong Kong like as a pilot? So I, 
Um, I, I, I flew to Kaitak once as a passenger, um, and I was, uh, I was over the moon. I'm, I'm so glad I was able to do it. Um, in some ways, I'm more, I'm happier I was able to do it as a passenger rather than a pilot because I was able to really, you know, sit back and enjoy the views rather than, than have to, um, concentrate on the flying. Um, but it, it was just, uh, you know, a monumental experience of, of both flying and of cities. Um, it, there's, uh, there, there was no approach like that as far as I know, uh, or, or there isn't one anywhere else like it. Um, but Hong Kong did become a very special place to me as a pilot because it, it was actually the destination of my first uh, flight on the 747, um, which was in December of 2007. So, uh, you know, you do a lot of your training in the in, in a flight simulator, but eventually uh, there's a first flight, and mine was mine was to Hong Kong, and we left uh, we left London on a on a cold and wet evening, and uh, and you know had that very very long flight, um, you know, all across uh, in Northern Europe and Russia and, and China, and, and made our approach to Hong Kong. I, I was I had never flown long haul before; I'd only done European flights, and I was really struck by that sense that we. Um, you know, we took off, you know, in, in darkness from London and then had the entire day, the entire following day in the air. And by the time we were landing in Hong Kong, it was, it was, it was getting, it was dark again. Um, and I kind of thought I had that kind of striking sensation of a day having, having vanished somehow and to have two nights in such close succession, um, especially in December, of course, um, when they're, when they're so short, uh, when the nights are so long and the days are so short. Um, and it, it was a, it was a momentous journey for other reasons because uh, when I was a kid growing up in Pittsfield, I had a, a pen pal from Hong Kong. Um, uh, her name's Lily, and uh, she grew up on uh, on Chung Chow. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly on the on the island. Mm. Um, and that and that island actually has a beacon on it, uh, which has its which is named for the island. Um, and that beacon formed part of the approach to Hong Kong. Uh, to the new airport, obviously, and so I had this very strange sensation of descending from London in my was I forty? No, I guess I was late thirties then. Uh, and but you know, decades after I last um, sent a letter to my pen pal or received one uh, through the mail slot of that of that you know red brick house in Pittsfield, and suddenly I'm flying a seven forty seven over uh, a beacon named for the island on which my pen pal um, lived and maybe still lives. Um, and then uh, we made that long. Um, that long pattern around and over the city to, to, to landing at the new airport. Um, and of course, Hong Kong is just, um, uh, you know, and I remember, I remember on the flight in, it, it was cloudy in Hong Kong, but eventually we came out below um, the clouds and had that, this view of Hong Kong Island. And um, I mean, it's just an extraordinary cityscape. There's really nothing else like it. Um, and, and then landing and, and kind of thinking like, wow, you know, I, 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 that I flew. A, I just flew a seven forty seven from Heathrow to Hong Kong. It, it was a kid's dream come true. I mean, it was literally my my dream that that had come true. Uh, I and I remember that flight. You know, I've I've flown three types of aircraft now: the um, the Airbus A three twenty series, the seven forty seven, and now the seven eight seven. But um, you know, and pilots have a lot of milestones. You have our first solo, our first instrument flight. You know, our first. Uh, many firsts but um that first flight to hong kong on the 747 is is definitely the highlight of my of my career and probably like a top 10 moment in my life (laughs) overall i'd I'd say uh and then you know hong kong is a is a city that i um you know got to to know many times when i when i flew there uh on, on subsequent visits uh and it comes into imagine a city in the sense that into this new book um because you know i'm 
when I was a kid growing up in Pittsfield, skyscrapers were a really big, um, literally uh, uh, a feature of my sense of cities. Um, Boston was our nearest city, but New York, well, Boston was our nearest big city. Um, and New York was uh, a little bit farther um, and in a slightly different direction. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, that's when you would we would drive there or we take the train um, or we would take a like a bus for a school trip or something that sense of a, of skyscrapers in the distance and then suddenly being among them and kind of looking up and I can almost I, I can remember being in the back seat of my parents car going to Boston and suddenly kind of looking up um, from the back seat just you know kind of straining to see the skyscrapers all around us um, you know and and I, I think many people who haven't been uh, to East Asia might think that the most skyscraper city uh, by far is New York, but of course, um, that's not true. Um, um, when I last calculated the numbers a couple of years ago, when I was finishing um, Imagine a City, I think I think 150 meters is one of the cutoffs that's used for skyscrapers. As a, I mean, it's one of the the, the higher cutoffs that you use when you count a skyline, and um, I think Hong Kong had around 500 buildings um, of that height or higher, um, and, and Shenzhen was actually second, uh, and New York was a very distant third. Um, and so the, the sense that, you know, Tokyo, I, I think Tokyo is still the ultimate city to me um, in some ways, and it's, obviously it's bigger than Hong Kong, but but certainly in that, to that, in that childlike, in a child's eyes, uh, where a city is, is defined by its skyline, Hong Kong is... is uh, you know, is the definitive city. And of course, it also combines, um, you know, I'm often struck by how often um, the cities that people love combine mountains and water. Um, it's just a really common combination. <laughs> um, if you think of uh, Vancouver or uh, Rio or, uh, or Cape Town or Los Angeles or, or, or Nice, or, you know, it's just a very evocative um, uh, natural setting for cities. Um and uh, and Hong Kong, and you know, exemplifies that as well. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a you know it's a very um, uh, compelling compelling cityscape. And you know, of course, in my first days there, I, I I did I did those obvious things. I took the Star Ferry and 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 walked around and went up a few skyscrapers and um, you know went up uh, took the tram up Victoria Peak. Uh, but um, you know, I've had some other explorations to some of the other islands, and and it's uh, it's a really it's 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 an astonishing place. I I hope I have a chance to go there many more times. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, for me, like Hong Kong was it? I think you mentioned kind of Hong Kong and New York. I mean, New York is one of the few cities in the world that actually kind of reminds me of Hong Kong due to was it I, you walk outside New York and there are skyscrapers everywhere. And I'm like, oh, it's like home, as I think yeah, skyscrapers yeah. Are, 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 are more fewer and far further, fewer and further between, I think, in other cities. But you mentioned Japan and I, I Japan pops up many times um, in your book, both Sapporo um but also tokyo uh and it, and it pops up kind of throughout the whole book kind of throughout from from beginning to end um and in kind of our conversations before this interview you talked about japan's importance as one of the key themes in in your book i wonder if you might talk a bit more about your experiences in japan and why it has been so important to you um in your in your life experience yes uh so when i was in when i was 17 i think um i I had a chance to spend a summer in Japan uh, and living with a Japanese host family. Um, and, and that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, a bit of a stretch uh, financially. I, um, I had to sort of save up some of my own money for my paper, my, my paper in my, you know, my parents weren't quite sure we could, we could swing it, but we did, they did. And, um, and I had this summer uh, in Kanazawa on the West coast of Japan. And that trip was, was incredibly important to me for a lot of reasons. I, I had never been to, to Asia before. Um, and, um, that, that, and it was, even though we were living with host families and, uh, you know, it was a kind of a supervised trip, it felt like an adventure, which, which set the tone for, for further adventures and, and really opened me up to the, to the wider world in a way that, that no other journey I'd made ever had. Um, and, you know, on that, we, we stayed in Tokyo for a few days at the start of the trip. And then, um, at the end of the trip, uh, went to Kyoto and, um, and again, back to Tokyo. And I had, I had never really understood again, you know, I was you know talking about New York being the, the sort of model city, you know, I, I kind of assumed New York was the biggest city in the world. And then I, um, and then you go to Tokyo and you realize that it is, it is on a different scale, even than New York. I, I think it's metro area is probably twice the population of New York. Um, now I think it's, it's 37 million people or something, which is basically Spain. I mean, it's basically all of Spain in one city. Um, and you know, it's transit maps and it's kind of endless cityscape or, or seem like a, 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 of a different order, um, or they did then to me and they, they still do to me. Uh, and then, so Japan became this kind of touchstone for me and, uh, when I was in college um, at Amherst, which I mean, the reason I went to Amherst was because their Japanese language program was so strong, and and their um, ties to um, to university in Kyoto were were um, were so old and and, and ongoing. Um, and and then after that, uh, you know, Japanese stayed with me as a as a sort of hobby and interest. And uh, when I worked in the business world, because I had um, some some language skills. Um, I, I got to go to Japan a number of times for, for work, um, and those stories of being a, a business person in Japan suddenly, <laughs> in young adulthood, kind of being astonished at the, uh, 
you know, at the fact that I was in a hotel room in in, um, in Shinjuku, um, about to go to a meeting and not quite feeling like like the adult I probably appeared to be, um, was a you know forms part of uh, Imagine a City as well. Um, and then, of course, uh, a few years later, I I, I started going back there uh, uh, as a pilot. Um, so that first flight um, to um, to Narita on, on a seven forty seven was was just just an extraordinary experience. I mean. Um, to fly back to that to that country that had meant so much to me when I was young, in a pilot, having um, had a couple of different careers in between that didn't quite work out, um, was was an extraordinary experience. Um, was really, you know, a very emotional one. And that um, that f- uh, flight, uh, you know, a flight from London to to Tokyo is actually the architecture of of Skyfaring of my first book. Um, it's kind of shaped around that flight very loosely. Um, in a way that meant a lot, and then um, you know, and now I, I I've gone back there a number a number of times on the seven eight seven um, and flown to um, Haneda for the first time as well, um, having been to Narita many many times. And on one of those trips, uh, I, I had a chance to go to Sapporo uh, in uh, um, on, on Hokkaido, uh, and I, I'd never been there before, but uh, but snow has you know Pittsfield, as as you'll know from from Western Massachusetts, you know it's a pretty snowy place. Um, uh, and snow meant a lot to me when I was a kid. I mean, it means a lot to every kid, I think. And in, in, you know, if you if like to ski or sled or whatever. But for me, I was always, um, you know, I, I didn't always like school very much. And that sense that you would wake up one morning and not only would the world be physically transformed in this really beautiful way, but you also wouldn't have to go to school. I mean, it was just. Um, you know, it was just an extraordinary, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a, my greatest joys of, of, um, my school years involved not going to school because it was a snow day. Um, and as an aside, I think that's going to fade a little bit as a phenomenon, because of course, now that a lot of schools are, are able to run online, um, from the pandemic era, um, I think snow days might become a thing of the past, which is, which is terrible news. Um, for today's kids, but um, yeah, and so the so in Pittsfield, you know, is a very snowy place um, compared to most of the U.S. or, or most of Western Europe, um, and uh, you know, snow has a, a very important role in Japanese culture. But I had never actually seen that because yeah, it, it very rarely snows in Tokyo. And then when I was in Kanazawa, it was in the summer, so I didn't see the the snow there. So that, a chance to see. Um, a city much larger than Pittsfield and even snowier than Pittsfield was uh, was high on my list. So I, did, I, I went up to Sapporo during a trip to Tokyo and had a few days in in um, one of the snowiest cities in the world. Um, certainly the, the snowiest large city, I think uh, it's fair to say. Uh, you know, when you see those tables of the snowiest cities in the world, I mean, some, some very quickly you move into cities you've never heard of or most people have never heard of. Um, and so you have you want to set a minimum population size, I guess. And, and, uh, and I think Sapporo is, is, uh, would be the, the snowiest large city by any measure. Um, and I, and so I, I wandered around and, and saw, you know, it's just been a whole day walking around and, um, having ramen and hot chocolate and, um, you know, just exploring, uh, you know, a sort of full-sized Japanese version of Pittsfield in some ways. Um, and, and, and wondering about, um, you know, whenever I passed um, kids being pulled on a, on, a, on a sled along the sidewalk, 
wondering how how snow would affect their sense of cities and, and of their home. And you know, once if you grew up in Sapporo, everywhere you go is going to be less snowy, basically. And and so it was it was a chance to think about what um, you know what cities might um, how how snow affected my sense of my childhood and of my first city and how and how it might affect um, people who who live in Sapporo or who grew up there. So I I, I kind of wanted take another big picture view now, although I'm sure there are, there are many stories in your book that help illustrate this point. You know, air travel is one of those standardized global systems. You know, they, they keep the world running often in the background. You note, I think this, this pops up. I remember this pops up definitely once in your book where you're flying into India and, and um, you're both communicating in the kind of standard English, but not just English, but the, the standard clipped English um, jargon of, of pilots and air traffic controllers. Um, so it means air travel is is standardized, is globalized. Everyone kind of speaks the same language, understands the same things. You know, it, it, I guess does that give um, you know those who work in this space, whether they're pilots or air crew or traffic controllers, or anyone, you know, does it, how does that kind of give them a different perspective on, I guess, on the world of globalization of what countries are, and I guess all of that. Yeah, that, that, that's such an interesting question to me. I, I mean, I, I often, I often wonder when we look back on the 20th century. I, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll, um, we'll think of computers as being, um, you know, um, a civilization altering um, event. Um, but you know, air travel. I wonder. I almost wonder if that would be the more interesting thing in some ways. I mean, I mean, if computers have come about first and aviation second, we would think of. You know, oh well, it's great to be able to email people, but how much better to actually be able to go and 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 see, you know, and meet them in person across the world? Uh, maybe that's just my bias towards towards aviation, but but clearly aviation ha- um, has furthered globalization um, and also embodies it and 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 depends on it. And you know, you, I often think of the the cargo containers that are loaded onto planes that contain, um, you know, luggage or, or freight, you know, and those containers kind of, you know, they're, 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 they're standardized by definition, you know, they, they have to be standardized because they're moving around the world and, and things get put in them and taken out of them and, and they have to be able to move freely. And, um, another example I often think of is the, you know, the engineers who work on planes. So the, um, you know, each, long haul flight is met by an engineer who is almost certainly from the country you're in, but has done this kind of standardized Boeing or Airbus course and, and, you know, qualification in order to, in order to, um, you know, to repair and um, complete checks on an airliner that is moving around the world. And so that everyone is working with this kind of standard um, knowledge set. And yet, and yet, of course, when the plane leaves, they all go home um, and they go home to, they go back to homes and to lives that are kind of beyond my imagining in some ways. Once I was on a flight to Istanbul, um, speaking of snow, and and, it, and we couldn't land in Istanbul because there, there was a snowstorm there. Um, so we flew to Ankara instead. And of course, we weren't meant to be in Ankara that night. Uh, there wasn't, it wasn't a scheduled arrival there. So they had to get an engineer out and then, you know, and other staff um, in the middle of the night um, to come meet our plane and and I kind of I you know the end this engineer came out it was a it was a really really rainy night it, it was raining in Ankara and snowing in Istanbul um, and so the engineer comes on board and he's he was you know soaked and obviously had been phoned phoned from at home and I I kind of thought you know 
I, I tried to imagine, I didn't ask him about this, but you know, I want, I was trying to imagine what his home was like and what he'd had for dinner. And um, if, you know, where did he have kids? Were they going to go to school the next day? What would they be learning in school? Um, and, and yet um, we, you know, we all have these, uh, um, we all come to aviation with, with such difference and yet we work uh, in this atmosphere and this environment, which is hot, you know, so heavily regulated and standardized. And um, in some ways, maybe it's a good model for globalization. Um, you know, I often, you know, you, you t- like any traveler, I have one of those travel adapters that has, you know, nine different pins on it to use in different countries. And, um, or you hear about uh, a train line that's being built from one country to another, but there's a problem because they have to switch gauge when they cross the border because, you know, 150 years ago, somebody made a decision about the railway gauge that's now, you know, echoing down the, down the ages. Um, and aviation um, is, a, is um, I think, in many ways, a lovely example of, of that, um, you know, of what we can do as a species and um, of how we're able to work together despite our differences. Yeah, no, that, that comment on the GH thing reminds me of the, of the funny road construction that they have to do between the border between Hong Kong and mainland China, because we drive on different sides of the road. Oh, of course. Yeah. So the, cars have to, so, yeah. so the lanes have to switch sides as, as, as cars cross the border. Um, oh my God. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do. I do have one final question, and you know, it's sure. COVID. COVID only pops up once at the very end of your book. It's a very small story among the many other stories that you have. But obviously, you know, the pandemic has uh, definitely put a pause on people's travel. Um, depending on where you were based, the pause was longer than others. I think four days after this conversation, I will be on my first flight since March, 2020. Um, But for, but for you personally, you know, how has the pandemic and everything that you had to do, how, how, how has the pandemic maybe changed your view on flying and being a pilot? So uh, for me, the pandemic, um, you know, it, it began um, with a, with a, with a halt to flying, which lasted maybe three or four weeks. I, I didn't fly anywhere. Um, but very quickly after that, um, I, I started flying again. And um, and those flights were, they didn't have, initially they didn't have a lot of passengers on them, but they had a lot of freight. Um, and um, I was, you know, I, I think may, people maybe don't think about air freight so much, or they think if they, if they think about it at all, they think it's going on dedicated cargo planes. Um, which obviously kept flying, but actually a lot of cargo goes on regular commercial airliners um, al- along with your baggage. And when when, when the pandemic hit, uh, a lot of those passenger flights weren't going. So the ones that did remain, the capacity on the ones that did remain became much more valuable. Um, and of course, a lot of the cargo we, was, we were carrying was, um, you know, was medical equipment or, uh, you know, personal protection equipment, that kind of thing. And so it was a very... It felt very um, um, sobering to walk through these airports that were completely shuttered. You know, the shops were um, just the gates were down on the shops, and then you'd walk to a plane, um, and and yet the plane would be would be the in terms of weight would be almost full, um, even though there were no passengers on board um, or very few passengers. And that was, I mean, it felt. Um, I mean, it felt use. I guess I felt useful in some way that I um, um, hadn't, um, you know, quite appreciated before in some ways. Um, 
you know, not, I th- I think I read in in the Economist um, not long ago that the the value you know air freight takes about thirty percent of the world's um, trade by value. I mean, obviously, very heavy things, big things they go by ship, but a lot of things go by plane, especially small valuable things, and so um, or, or perishable things. Um, and so that was uh, quite an interesting experience. Um, you know, when we went to cities. Um, in some cities, we couldn't even leave um, our, our hotel because local regulations prohibited it. And in some places, we couldn't even leave our rooms. Uh, we would be given a key card that only opened the door once. Um, and and so, um, you know, you'd go into the room and you could get room service and do exercise on your, you know, on whatever exercise app you're using. Um, and of course, um, I was able to, to do some work on the book then, which was just finishing up. Um, and so it was, you know, an utterly unique time. I mean, I, I started flying, um, I was doing my flight training course, my initial one during that when not, when not 11 happened. Um, and I think my colleagues and I on that course, we thought that, uh, we would never see, uh, aviation disrupted. And again, in the way that we had at that, at that period, we kind of thought, you know, um, well, that was clearly a, you know, a, a crisis in, in aviation terms of that was, you know, once in a century or something. But of course, um, the COVID one was in many ways um, a deeper, a deeper um, uh, crisis for for anyone who works in travel. And of course, it, it wasn't just um, you know air travel. It was, um, you know, the entire travel industry was all around the world was was really devastated. I think, I think there's like three or four hundred million people who work in travel or transport. Um, you know, writ large, and and maybe sixty or seventy million of them lost their jobs. When I, I went to Delhi in uh, April, um, a journey I, I wrote about for the Financial Times, and it was the I'd been to Delhi a number of times during the pandemic. But this was my first trip there after we were able after it was unlocked essentially, and we were able to to move around the city. And you know, air crews have websites where we share uh, information on you know if you're in the city, do this tour. If you want to do this food tour, this guide will help you. Um, so I went to that section for Delhi, and and I started clicking on these links, and they were all the links were all dead. That all those businesses were gone. It was really shocking, um, and to realize um, the role, the economic um, impact of aviation, and 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 the personal impact uh, um, of the pandemic on. Um, on people who uh, you know who who work and travel and, and trade you know in the travel industry all around the world, um, so hopefully we're entering a, a brighter phase um, for travel and those uh, whose whose lives depend on it. So I think that's a good place to interview with Mark Van Honecker, author of Imagine a City: A Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. Mark, I actually have two final questions for you. Sure, which yeah. are uh, which are. Uh, where can people find your work and what may be next for you? What may be the next project? Uh, so uh, Imagine a City uh, is, uh, it's available uh, in English now. There's a US and a UK edition. Um, and uh, if you search my name, uh, Mark Van Honecker, you'll find my website and, and links there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at um, um, markv 747 you won't be surprised to hear is my Twitter handle. I have not updated that to uh, the 787, so it's markv 747 um, And uh, I'm always happy to hear from readers and passengers, um, and I get a lot of window seat pictures people take, which I'm always happy to get. Um, and uh, Imagine City will actually be coming out in Japanese and in simplified Chinese, um, I think, in the next year or so. So... Um, 
hopefully uh, some of your listeners will be able to read it um, in their first language. Uh, in terms of what's next for me, um, I don't have a new book on the uh, on the. I haven't. I don't have a, a new book on, on the cards yet, but uh, I'm continuing with my Financial Times column and occasional uh, New York Times contributions, um, and uh, particularly the the Financial Times column, which is aviation focused. Uh, if any listeners have uh, have ideas for what they'd like to see me write about, um, I'm always happy to uh, to hear those ideas. And many of my columns will come from suggestions from readers. So um, uh, I look forward to hearing from from uh, anyone who's listening to this who has any um, any thoughts on on flying or cities or uh, or travel. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to agentreviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Mirabi uh, Parks is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned to know who's coming up on the show, but before then... Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas. I really, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.